And I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3. One last time in this glorious, glorious book. While you're turning there, uh, I'm sure that you've had the same experience that I've had before where you are, maybe it's reading a book, and then uh, at the very end of that book, uh, the author gives you some crazy plot twist, and you're reading in your bed, and you go, no way, and you put the book down, and you can't wait to text your friend, I can't believe that happened. Maybe it's not a book for you, maybe it's, it's a movie or a TV show from classic lines like, I am your father from you know, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, to more recent uh, directors like M. Night Shyamalan or Christopher Nolan, who write amazing plot twists into their film. We love that amazing moment where we, we stare in awe and we all say, that's not what I expected. That's not what I expected. Didn't see that one coming. Well, in Habakkuk, we're going to see that. This is not what we expect at the end of this book. This is not what we expect. We've seen in Habakkuk, we've seen him lament. We've seen him wrestle and struggle with God. We've seen God answer him and tell him certain things and tell him that there's other things that he cannot be able to understand, that he has to wait with patience and faith. We've seen Habakkuk wrestle with God's plan. We've seen Habakkuk remember God's dealings in the past. And we've seen Habakkuk wait with hope in the present. And we ended last week by seeing him in complete fear and anguish, right? He was just in absolute anguish at the prospect of what was going to happen. He knew what the future was going to bring, total devastation for his people, and then ultimately Babylon would be judged as well. So how would we expect Habakkuk to end? We've heard every lament that Habakkuk gives. We've heard every response from God. And now Habakkuk is writing a song. How would we expect that song to end? If I were writing the song, I would end it with, I guess that's it. (laughs) Don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, I know that God's in control. I sure am not. I would have ended it with just some, let me sign off and be done. In fear and anguish of soul, I would expect Habakkuk just to curl up, grit his teeth, bear with what is about to come, completely paralyzed by the prospect of the future. But what he actually does is completely unexpected. This is the plot twist to end all plot twists. Instead of crying, instead of curling up, instead of just... Uh, leaving everything to God and saying, I'm done and I don't have any part in this and I'm just going to relegate myself to the future and what it brings. Instead of doing all of those things, he rejoices, he sings, he responds with joy. These truly are, this is not a hyperbole, these are truly some of the most stunning verses in all of the Bible. They're among the most powerful statements of faith in all of the scriptures. And they are because... Habakkuk is not rejoicing in the fact that the circumstances are getting fixed. They're not. The circumstances are getting worse. But Habakkuk's joy is not dependent on the circumstances. They aren't dependent upon the resources that he has. His joy is dependent upon the provider of those resources. And Habakkuk offers his final response in these verses, and it is an amazing pattern for us as we walk through suffering. So let's read these verses and we'll dive in together. After remembering what God had done in the past, recalling it to mind and saying, I know God, you're going to do it again in the future. And after verse 16, waiting with hope, knowing with fear and anguish in his heart that the day of distress is coming, but he will wait. Habakkuk writes these words in verses 17 through 19. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. 
I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet, and he makes me walk on high places. These words are for the choir director on my stringed instruments. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we know that the enemy would want to distract us, to take our minds off of your word. Uh, we, we come tired, physically exhausted. We come emotionally spent. We come spiritually weary. But we come completely depending upon you to work in this moment. To do something miraculous in our hearts. To shore up our souls for the days ahead so that we would be able to see like Habakkuk is seeing. We would be able to feel what he is feeling. We would be able to respond in the midst of trials the way that he is responding. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts in such a way today that when we go through trials, and it's not if we do, but when we do, when we go through trials, that the next trial we encounter, we would be able to experience it the way Habakkuk is experiencing his trials. This, this is a supernatural work. This is not fleshly. This is not worldly. This is nothing that we can produce on our own. This is a counter-cultural mindset. And so, Father, we need your help. We need the Spirit to work in our hearts, to open our eyes, to build wonderful things from your law. We need Jesus to be our focus and our prize and our treasure and our vision. And we need you, Father, to be to us our greatest joy beyond anything that this world has. May we run to you now in faith. And God, may you work in our hearts now, we pray. Amen. In these three short verses, we see two unbelievable realities. They're unbreakable realities. They're unchangeable realities. These are two reasons that we can find satisfaction in the Savior when everything else is stripped away. I want to give you two reasons, or Habakkuk wants to give you two reasons this morning, why we can find and how we can find satisfaction when all around us is stripped away. We can still have joy, we can rejoice, we can find satisfaction even when everything is stripped away. How? Why? Habakkuk wants to teach us that. This satisfaction is found only in the Savior. And point number one in verses 17 through 18 the satisfaction is found in the fact that, number one, God is our steadfast joy in the midst of agonizing loss. God is our steadfast joy in the midst of agonizing loss. God is steadfast in joy for us in the midst of all of the loss that we could experience in our lives. Just look at what Habakkuk says, verse 17. This is just a description of utter chaos and calamity. The fig tree is not blossoming. Uh, to, to blossom, for a fig tree to blossom, that means that fruit is coming. So that means there's no fruit on the tree now, and there's no fruit coming tomorrow. So that means today stinks, and so does tomorrow. There's no fruit on the vines. Literally, there's no produce. There's no, nothing being produced on these vines. There's nothing being grown to be eaten. Though the yield of the olive should fail. This is no olive, so no olive oil. No food, no ability to cook with it, no medicinal purposes. We read in uh, a few stories that Jesus tells in the Gospels that oil was used as medicinal purposes with medicinal value. None of that. You have none of that. The olive fails. The fields also produce no food. So there's a total famine. There's no food out there. And the flock is cut off from the fold. And so there's a loss of food for them. That means there's a loss of food for you. There's also a loss of income. There's no hope that they can breed to create more food or more workers in the fields for you. There's none of that. And there's no cattle in the stalls. So there's no transportation. There's no help. There's no food. There's no income. You can't grow something to sell it. You, if you could grow something, you couldn't take it somewhere to sell it. You have just lost everything. You have nothing. And on top of all of this, 
Babylon is coming in to destroy you. Notice none of these things have anything to do with an army coming in. These are all natural disasters. So Habakkuk is saying, I know that Babylon is going to destroy us, and even if more bad things happen, even if before they come in to destroy us, the whole earth just turns against us. All these failures are natural disasters, not an army causing these. These are life-crushing realities. These are sequential, just one after the other, after the other, after the other. Now, I don't know if anybody in here is a farmer. Anybody a farmer? I didn't think so. I was trying to go through our membership roles. I don't think anybody's a farmer in here. So instead of using these words to describe what loss you are experiencing, listen to this description. Though my boss hands me a pink slip and tells me to clean out my desk because I was no longer needed. Though all my savings have been depleted, I have no money to pay rent. I've defaulted on my mortgage. I don't know where to live. And I could stand those things, but my firstborn child had a terrible disease that took her life. And her younger brother is showing signs that he too has the same illness. Though I'm losing everything. Yet, I will still rejoice in the Lord. Verse 18, Habakkuk says, Though all of these things are being taken away, yet, despite what I'm losing, I will exult in the Lord. He's rejoicing in God. It's exult, not exalt. Exalt is to praise. Exalt is to rejoice in, to celebrate, to triumph. He's not praising God or lifting up his name through song, kind of a a thing that we do in worship through song. That's exalting the Lord. This word exult means to feel triumphant elation. He's feeling triumphant elation after the description of what he just said. I've lost everything, and yet he feels triumphant elation. He's celebrating. Brothers and sisters, this is crazy. This is idiotic. This is, seems unrealistic. And if I could use a word that's a bad word in my household, but I can use it here, this is stupid. This, how do you react this way? This seems absolutely foolish. It goes against all logic to say I've lost everything and I'm, gonna, I'm still triumphant. I've lost everything and I celebrate? It's counterintuitive, it's countercultural, and that's the point. That's the point. This would make no sense to a believer. This hardly makes sense to a, this would make no sense to a non-believer. This hardly makes sense to a believer. To look at somebody experiencing loss like this and to say I still can celebrate in triumph. That's unreal. The world gets why you would love God when everything is going great. When God seems to disappoint you, when things go wrong around you and God seems to disappoint you, and you as his follower still love him, that just makes no sense. The world's going to look and wonder, wait, who is your God? They get it if God is blessing you and you say, I love you, God. That's what Satan said about Job, right? Satan said, Job only loves you, God, because you've given him things. And so what does God say? No, 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 there's a love that goes deeper than that. If I take it all away, he will still love me because he doesn't love me for what I'm giving him. He loves me for me. That's when the world looks on and say, who is this God? Who is this God? Sometimes Christianity is presented as I had a problem, I found God, the problem went away. It's not the heart of Christianity. It's not really the truth. Right now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, all hell lets loose against you. Trials begin when you follow Jesus. And yet, you can still rejoice. And what is Habakkuk rejoicing in? He's not rejoicing in circumstances being better. He's not rejoicing in things changing. He's rejoicing in God, his sovereign Lord, his unchanging Savior. That's who he is rejoicing in, not his circumstances. We have nothing else to hold on to but Christ. If we lose everything, if we lose everything in this life, we can never lose Christ. And that's why Habakkuk says, I only have him, so I'm rejoicing in him. It's Romans 8. Remember Romans 8, the end of that amazing chapter? 
who can be against us? Who can separate us from the love of God? Who can be against us? My answer to Paul is a lot of people can be against me. A lot of people are against me. Paul, I don't know what world you live in, but everyone's against me. But Paul's saying, who can successfully be against you, right? Who can actually take God away from you? And who can actually take you away from God? No one. No one can successfully be against you. You can never be separated from the love of God. Famine can't take your soul away. Loss can't take your soul away. Cancer can't take your soul away. One commentator says it this way, even if the devastation is total, even if there's no retribution or restoration, Yahweh, my God, my Lord, my strength, my salvation has become the sole and sufficient object of my ecstatic hope and joy. I just have God and I just need him and that's all. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, it's not merely resignation or saying, well, there's no use crying over spilt milk or getting alarmed and excited because we can't do anything about it. That's, that's what I would expect Habakkuk to say, right? Habakkuk, well, there's nothing I can do about it, so we'll sign off. Done with this letter, send it. Nor was it just applying the principle of psychological detachment. It was not taking oneself in hand and saying, the best thing is not to think about it. Go to the movies, read novels, just don't think about it. Sort of escapism. Neither was it an attempt at being courageous. There is here no exhortation to courage. There is something infinitely greater than just making a mighty effort of the will and saying, I'm not going to whimper or cry, I'm going to be a man. Instead of mere resignation or plucking oneself up by their own courage, the scriptures show that it's possible, even under such conditions, to be in a state of actually rejoicing. This is just truly magnificent. I lose everything and I still rejoice. The prophets come to a place of joy because his God has come to him. Now, as God has come to him in a very precise way, and this is a way that we need to understand, there's a huge difference between being captivated by someone and being captivated by what someone can do. Habakkuk has seen what God can do. He remembers what God can do. But he's not captivated by that alone or foundationally by that. We as believers are called to be captivated by both, by what God can do, his wondrous deeds, his wondrous works. We're to declare those to the nations. But we are to be captivated more by who God is than by what he does. It's kind of a a horizontal love versus a vertical love. Horizontal love of looking at what God's doing in the world, how he works, how he acts. We should be amazed at that and worship God for those things. But if that's all we are looking at, if that's where our vision terminates, then when those things are gone... We have no reason to celebrate. We have no reason to rejoice. Vertical love says, God, I'm going to worship you for who you are. Even if the things around me go away, even if I lose everything, even if everything around me is destroyed, I still have you. I'm going to worship you for who you are, not for what you give. That's the way that you get to be where Habakkuk is. I'm going to worship you for who you are, not just what you give. What you give is great, and we enjoy it as a gift. But I'm going to worship you for who you are. Another way to say it is don't ever use God as a means to an end. Use God to get something. God, I'll praise you if I have. God, I'll praise you and worship you if I get. And if you give to me. Habakkuk is is teaching us God is the end. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. And everything around us is a means to getting more of him. Every other joy can be taken away from, from us. But if our greatest joy is in something that can be taken away, then it's a terrible joy. Throw it away. That's why we say, what's our hope in life and death? If death can take away our joy, then we need a better joy. That's why Habakkuk says, I'm going to find my joy in something that can never be taken, can never be changed. Since Jesus is my greatest treasure, anything, whether it's good or bad, that leads me to him is something that I can rejoice in. I can triumph because I have more of him. And sometimes that's the reality. When everything's stripped away, we see more of him. That's why we rejoice. By the way, rejoicing doesn't mean you're smiling the whole time. It's not fake, smiley, false, you know, ridiculousness. That's not what this is. He was just in anguish one verse earlier, right? He was just in fear and anguish, couldn't even stand up. So this is a kind of joy that goes deeper than just, I'm okay with a smile on your face. 
The reality is it's very easy to trust God when the bank account is big, but faith that is not reliable and remains when it's tested is not real faith at all. Many of you know I, I love the Christian artist Stephen Curtis Chapman. Uh, he has a song that has a line in it. It's off of his worship album. And the line says, we want lives that prove that we really do believe. We want lives that prove that we really do believe. I remember I was listening to that record when my son was in Children's Hospital. Uh, he was taken there on a Monday, and we were waiting for us, his open-heart surgery to be on Friday. And I think it was a Wednesday or a Thursday. I just decided to go for a run. Didn't know really what else to do with myself. I put earbuds in, listened to that song, started playing it. And as I rounded the corner on our street, that line just floored me. It stopped me in my tracks. We want lives that prove that we really do believe. And if you were driving past me, you you would have thought I was injured or something because I just stopped in my tracks, bent over on my knees, and was weeping. And I just prayed, God, this is... This is what I want. I want to prove to the world around me that you're better than anything. And if that means you have to take my son, then so be it, because I want a life that would prove that you're better than even the gift of my precious son. I want a life that would prove that I really believe you're better. I don't want to just say you're better. So God, whatever you have to do, to make me know that and to show that to others. Do it. Habakkuk would never have said these words in verses 17 through 19. He would have never never have known that God is enough if he hadn't have gone through this trial. This stripped everything away for him to be able to say, I've got nothing and you're still all I need. You're still all I have. You're only what I have and I have everything that I need. He would have known none of this if it hadn't been for the pain of the trials. By the way, that should reorient us to our understanding of suffering and pain. I love how C.S. Lewis says it in The Problem of Pain. We want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven whose plans for the universe uh, is such that it might be said at the end of every day, a good time was had by all. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines. But since it's abundantly clear that I don't, and since I have reason to believe nevertheless that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and limit his wisdom by what seems to us to be wise. This is the age-old problem of evil. Many of you have heard it. Many of you maybe have even had this problem in your own mind. How can so much evil happen in the world and there be a God who's in control and he claims to be good and he claims to be loving and he still lets these things happen? C.S. Lewis says it that way, which is very helpful. I think we could say it another way. Theodicy, you can use the word theodicy, theos and dikaios. Theos is God and dikaios is the justice or righteousness. How can God be righteous and just? How can he be good and evil exist? Now, the way we say it is, why do bad things happen to good people? That's theodicy, the problem of evil. But the problem of evil, theodicy, is dependent upon an unstated presupposition. Think with me here. The, The problem of evil, right? Why, is, why are bad things happening around me? Why doesn't God just stop it and let good things happen? That question, that argument, that problem is dependent on an unstated presupposition. Here's the presupposition. That the greatest good in the world is the well-being and comfort of human beings, our temporal enjoyment and happiness. If that is the presupposition, which has to be, that the greatest good in the world is me being happy, then when bad things happen, I'm going to call God into question. Excuse me, why are you letting this happen? To the degree that we don't have unfettered, unchecked happiness, God must have some moral deficiency. This is the problem of evil. But if we reject everything that the world tells us, if we throw away that presupposition, unstated as it might be, we throw that away and we replace it with the biblical presupposition 
that the greatest good in the world is not our personal happiness or our temporal comfort and pleasure. The greatest good in the world is that we know God and worship Him. That's the greatest good in the world. That we'd worship Him as He deserves to be worshipped, and in worshiping Him, we'd be satisfied in Him beyond all things. And then if we have that, then trials around us and the suffering that goes on in our lives totally make sense because God's doing things to get that greatest good to be achieved. We could say it another way. If Jesus gives me everything that I want temporally here, but does not give me himself, if he's the greatest good that there is, if he's the only source of soul satisfaction, and he gives me everything that I want in this life, but he doesn't give me himself, he's being cruel. If he gives you the happiest life you could possibly have, but he doesn't give himself to you, he's being cruel. And if he chooses to take away temporal pleasures, temporal happiness, the gifts that he has graciously given, if he chooses to do that in order to give you more of himself, then he's being as kind and as merciful as possible. If he gives you pain and suffering and sorrow and despair, but he gives you himself, He's being merciful. These are realities that Habakkuk is processing and coming to grips with as he says, though I lose everything, yet I will exult in the Lord. Middle of verse 18, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. We're going to talk more about that verse at the end. But that's the first unchanging reality. For believers, this is our source of satisfaction when all else is stripped away. Number one, that God is our steadfast joy in the midst of agonizing loss. But Habakkuk doesn't end with joy. Number two, he says God is our indestructible strength in the midst of suffocating weakness. God is our indestructible strength in the midst of suffocating weakness. He is, number one, our steadfast joy in the midst of agonizing loss. And number two, he is our indestructible strength in the midst of suffocating weakness. This is verse 19. The Lord God is my strength. He uses the covenant name of of God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. He's my strength. He has made my feet like hind's feet. This is a, a deer, a little rock deer that can stick its feet into the side of the rock. It can literally walk sideways on a big mountain and just shove its hooves into the cracks in the rock and it won't fall. It's an ibex. It's an amazing creature. I've seen it a couple times when I was in Israel. You just expect at a moment's notice this this poor goat-looking animal is just going to fall right off a cliff and instead it just moves around the cliff and it's safe. And you just wonder, how was that possible? That's what Habakkuk is saying. You've made my feet like that. The world around me is this crumbling tower of suffering and sorrow, and yet you're making me to be able to stand. You make me to walk on high places. And therefore, I'm going to sing. This is for the choir director. This is a song to be sung. Because in the midst of difficult times, though the mountainous terrains may be all around me, God has made me able to stand. I'm not able to stand on my own. God made me able to stand. Brothers and sisters, if there's a mountain ahead of you, or if you currently are on a mountain where you feel you are going to fall, Habakkuk is telling you God is able to make you stand. You can't stand on your own. We are way too confident in ourselves. We can't do it. God can do it. God is our strength. But you'll never know this if you don't go through these times. If all you do is walk on a beautiful path with no problems around you, no hardships, no suffering, no mountains that are difficult to navigate. If all you do is walk in those beautiful places, you don't need any help around you. That's why God says, let's go to this mountain. Let's go to a place where suffering is real so that you can see I am your strength. You can see I'm your joy and I'm your strength. I'm your satisfaction. You won't know that God is your everything until he is all that you have. I want to invite you today to pray something that's very risky. Pray a very risky prayer. Say, God, do whatever it takes to show me that my heart can be satisfied in you alone. Do whatever it takes. I want a life that proves that I really believe you're everything I need. So do whatever it takes. 
And brothers and sisters, I know this is not some hypothetical sermon or hypothetical situation for us. And in our prayer request, just this last week, we've navigated through difficult things. We have families that are struggling with loss. We've had, we've had families in our church that have lost precious little children. We've had people that have gone through untold suffering. We have people that are navigating currently times where they feel like, I can't stand up on my own. There's no way. I have no certainty. I have no hope. I have no future. And I don't know what I'm going to do. Some of us have lost jobs. Some of us have lost friends. Some of us have broken relationships. Some of us have guilt from past experiences that just every day we wake up and that guilt is there. Habakkuk is saying, in the midst of the greatest storm in your life, if I have God, I have everything I need. He's my joy and He's my strength. I have no joy outside of Him. I have no strength outside of Him. He's all I need. Notice that Habakkuk has gone from, God, do this for me, to God, all I need is you. I just need you. Remember we talked about that's lamenting, right? Lamenting starts with provision prayers. God, make this happen. And they move always to presence prayers. God, I just want your presence. So, two questions for us this morning. Where is our greatest joy? And where is our greatest strength? Where is our greatest joy? And where is our greatest strength? I would, I would plead with you to honestly examine your own heart. What, what is your greatest joy? Is it a relationship that you have? Is it a relationship you're longing for? Is it a future you're hoping for? Well, what's your source of greatest joy? And what's your source of greatest strength? Maybe it's just as simple as a good night's sleep. I just want a good night's sleep and I can wake up and I don't really have to rely on anybody but myself because I got a good night's sleep. Maybe your source of strength is control. I understand what's happening in my life. I understand what's going on. Unknowns are terrifying because you feel weak. What is your source of greatest joy and source of greatest strength? It should be in God. It must be in Him. So my question is, how do we do that? How do we find our greatest joy and greatest strength in God? How do we do that? A couple of things. Number one, you have to know Him. You have to know Him. If you want your greatest joy and greatest strength to be in God, you must know Him. Not just simply about Him. You need to know Him. Because if you just simply know facts about Him, you're not going to cherish Him. You're just going to say, I know about Him. You have to know Him. That's why... I wake up and I read this book. That's why I encourage every one of us to be in this book because this tells us about who God is. This reveals why He is our source of soul satisfaction. Secondly, you have to know yourself. Not only do you have to know God, but you have to know yourself. You have to know what are the natural proclivities that you have to find joy in other things, to find strength in other things. You have to honestly assess yourself. Where do I find my greatest joy and my greatest strength? You have to get other people involved in your life. That's why we do small groups, right? We, we talk with each other. We ask each other questions. We dialogue. We, we bring our hearts out. We look at our hearts. We navigate the, the crazy areas of our hearts that we don't even know because the heart's deceitfully wicked. So we need each other. That's why we do small groups. So you have to know God. You have to know yourself and what you find usually, what you tend to find your greatest source of joy and satisfaction in. And then once you have those two realities, knowing who God is, and knowing who you are, you have to see life with biblical clarity and wisdom. You have to be able to see life with biblical clarity and wisdom. What do I mean by biblical clarity and wisdom? You could go to Job, a wisdom book. Remember what Job says in the opening chapters? When he goes through an experience like Habakkuk is talking about, that he loses everything, what does he say? The Lord has given... And what? The Lord has taken away. He gave this gift and he's taken it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can I ask you a question? What, 
really animates your life? What gets you through the day? What energizes you through the day? How do you see life? What is your, what's your main focus in how you see life? And if you say God, that's good. That's the Iwana answer. But don't say God right now. And don't even say God's will. I want to find God's will. Just what is it that really animates you? What really animates me, I believe what really animates Habakkuk, what really animates Job, what really animates what I desire to animate my soul in every moment is that everything in life is a gift. Everything in life is a gift. That's what animates me. Life does not owe me a thing. I'm not entitled to anything. I'm not entitled to be the father to my children. That's a gracious gift from the Lord. I did nothing to deserve that. God just gave those amazing, beautiful, sweet, precious children to me. God gave me a gift. God gave me an amazing family. God gave me the most amazing woman in the entire universe to be my wife, to be my best friend and to be my wife. I didn't deserve that. I don't earn that somehow. That's just a gift. And if God chose to take that gift from me, you better believe you'd have to come to my house and grab me off of the floor weeping and wailing over the loss of my best friend. But at the end of the day, Lord willing, like Habakkuk, I'd be able to say, I can rejoice in God. I was given a gift for a moment, and it was a precious gift. And God chose to take the gift away. The opposite of living like that, and this is something we all struggle with, is living with a sense of entitlement. Living with a sense of, I deserve, I've done something to earn. Life should go the way that I want it to go because of things that I've done. I've set myself up for success. I've worked so hard. Whatever the narrative is, I deserve this. I just want to encourage you today, if you feel that way, if you live that way, you can't live like Habakkuk. You can't live like Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk's going to say, all of it's been stripped away, and I'm still celebrating. If you're entitled, you're going to struggle when the trials come, when life doesn't go the way that you thought it should, that you prepared yourself for it to go. I'm not entitled to anything. I was thinking through this sermon, and I just I realized I'm not entitled to my church family. My precious son drove with me this morning. He woke up early, and this is a good story to tell because poor Ethan ends up becoming some bad examples, but this was a great one this morning. He got up with me. I get up at 5.30, and he got up at 6, just bounding out of his room. I said, can I go to church early with you today? I said, yeah, absolutely, come on. And we drove to church, and we drove up Woodley, and he knows as we're going up the hill, hey, we're going to church, this is going to be fun. And he asked me such a random question, and I thought, man, you read my notes. Like, how did you, how'd you know? He said, Dad, is this your church? I said, no, it's God's church. God's church. God's graciously allowed me to be the pastor, but it's God's church. He said, so it's mostly God's church, but it's kind of your church. <laughs> I said, no, it, it's all God's church. I just, I had literally been thinking about that last night. This isn't my church. I'm not entitled to anything. I'm not entitled to you being here, to you listening to me. I'm shocked every Sunday that there's people in this room. Not entitled to any of it. It's a gift. So when you lose these gifts, oh man, it's hard to not just focus on loss. We've had this happen even in our in our own church. People have left uh, to move away. They've gone uh, because of financial issues or because of retirement issues or whatever. They've gone other places, and it's been sad. But if our greatest joy is in a family and that family leaves, then there goes our greatest joy. When you lose a gift, it's hard not to just focus on the loss instead of focusing on all the time you're able to enjoy the gift. And Habakkuk is saying, man, I, I, I'm going to lose a bunch of things, but I'm never going to lose God. 
I'm going to lose a bunch of things, but I'm never going to lose God. And if I don't lose God, then I have everything that I need for my soul to be satisfied. I, I just thank the Lord that Habakkuk is in the Bible. Now we just need to live it. We just need to live this book out. We've learned so much from our brother Habakkuk. We've learned how to lament. We've learned of God's holiness. We've learned how God works in the midst of human affairs in such a way that we can know just a tiny sliver of what's going on, but there's so much that we don't understand. We've learned how to wait for God's response. We've learned how to recall and remember the work of God in the past. We've learned how to wait and to hope in the present, even though things aren't going well. And we've learned how through it all, the foundational principle is that the righteous will live by faith. The just will live by faith. That's the crux of this whole book. Will you wait and by faith cling to God, even if you lose everything else? Will you trust him and cling to him? And the the proud is um, the opposite of that. They live by what they conceive, what, what they can comprehend, what they know. The truly humble, righteous person trusts God and is fine to let things happen the way that God orchestrates them and is okay with not knowing. It's okay not to know. God knows, and I can rest in the one who knows. But at the end of this whole sermon series, we're forced with a distilling question. And I think at the end of the entirety of Habakkuk, we can ask this question to distill all of it down to just one heart-penetrating question. Which are we more aware of? Suffering or salvation? Which are we more aware of? Suffering or salvation? Now, please hear me. I don't want to ignore suffering. Suffering is real. I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to just sweep it under the rug and say, get over it, right? That's the, the worst counsel that anybody can give you. I'm, I'm depressed. I'm sad. I'm going through difficult experiences. And the counselor goes, well, just stop. <laughs> just get over it. Be happy already. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Habakkuk is saying. I don't want to minimize suffering. I want to maximize salvation. Suffering is huge in our lives, but salvation is bigger. So which do you focus and are more aware of in your life? Suffering that you're going through or salvation that you've been given? Those who experience joy in the midst of suffering are those who realize that their sufferings in this life are never as great or as serious as their sin. Again, if we're entitled, we, we think the world owes us something, and that's because we're pretty good people. Therefore, salvation is going to be minimized in our eyes because we're decent human beings. But if we understand that God saved a wretch like me, then salvation is maximized. And suffering has its rightful place in our lives because the suffering is never as great as our sin. God in his grace addressed our most serious problem. Only he could solve it. And he did. Jonathan Edwards says it like this. How far less are the greatest afflictions that we meet within this world than what we have deserved? The greatest outward troubles and calamities that we meet with must need appear very little things to the misery we have deserved. Oh, a man may meet with very great losses, his cattle may die, his corn may be blasted, his barn may be burnt down, and all of the goods consumed, and he may be brought from a comfortable living to a poor, low, stricken state. This is very hard to bear. But alas, how little reason have such to complain if they do but consider how little this is compared with that eternal destruction that we have been informed of. It's that comparison that makes all the difference in our joy. To know we've been saved from an eternity separated from God in hell forever under judgment and punishment and wrath because of our sins. We've been saved from that. Then brothers and sisters, as bad as this life is, this is the worst it gets for us. We just get heaven to enjoy and to look forward to. And when we get there, everything sad will work backwards and become untrue in this life. For a non-believer, as bad as this world is, this is the best that you have. Because if you die apart from knowing Jesus Christ, then you will spend an eternity paying the penalty for the sins that you've committed against him. 
So can I plead with you to run to Jesus? Flee to Christ today and find forgiveness in Him so that salvation can be your focus far and beyond your suffering. Habakkuk had a lot of those, right? A lot of those. Though the fig tree, though there be no cattle. He had a lot of those. What are your those? You're going to have some this week. (laughs) We're going to go through some those this week. We've gone through some those together. Though we cannot fellowship as a church, though we cannot see each other for small group, though the economy is being destroyed, though the stock market plunges, though all of our retirement is gone, though we lose our jobs, though we lose our health, though we may lose our very lives. What are your those? Everyone has a though. Not everyone responds like Habakkuk. And oh, how I want to be like Habakkuk. How do we do it? We focus on our salvation. The great mystery is not why do we suffer. The great mystery is why a sinless Savior would suffer for me. D.A. Carson says it in an amazing way. Habakkuk resolves that however great the privation, he must suffer along with the covenant community, whatever he loses, he will delight the more in God. It is almost as if the threatened loss of all material blessings and security drives him to enjoyment of God. There's nothing and no one else to rely on, and therefore nothing to mask the enjoyment of God that ought to be the believer's focus. Firm resolve this may be. Grim resolution it is not. It's the resolution of one whose eyes have been opened to see where his delight should have been in the first place. I love that line. It's a resolution of one whose eyes have been opened to see where his delight should have been in the first place. He resolves that he will delight more in God in the midst of these painful and perplexing circumstances. It's as if the threat and loss of all material blessing and all security drives him to an enjoyment of God that ought to be the believer's focus because we were created and redeemed to enjoy the person of God and not simply his gifts. Habakkuk's eyes have been opened to see where his delight should have been in the first place. What about you? Have your eyes been opened to see where your delight should be? If they have been, then today is the day to savor the goodness of God. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I just, I would plead with you, lunch can wait. Don't walk out those doors until you talk with somebody, talk with myself, talk with Donis who read up here our scripture passage earlier this morning. Talk to Kyle, talk to Michaela, talk to Hannah. Talk to somebody so that you can know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is your greatest joy. You can know that your soul is saved by his work on the cross because you've found your satisfaction to him and forsaken all others. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, then we, we have reason to do what Habakkuk has modeled for us this morning. We're going to sing. We're going to sing a song, actually, to begin our portion of, of responding through song. That was written by a man named William Cooper. Uh, He's wrote several other hymns that we sing. There's a fountain filled with blood. Uh, God moves in mysterious ways. He struggled with depression all his life. Struggled even with uh, suicide. and Very depressed. Clings to Christ to the last day. And he wrote a hymn. Uh, He wrote a poem which became a hymn. The poem was called In Christ Confiding, and it became the Christian hymn Sometimes a Light Surprises, which we're going to sing to the tune of The Church's One Foundation. I just want to read these words so that you can begin meditating on them, and then we'll sing them together in response to say, God, all I have is you, and I can rejoice. Instead of saying, everything's been taken away, and this stinks, We say, everything's been taken away. All I have is you, and I rejoice because Christ is ours forevermore. William Cooper writes, Sometimes a light surprises. 
the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. In holy contemplation, we sweetly then pursue the theme of God's salvation, focus on God's salvation, not our suffering. And we find it ever new. Set free from present sorrow, we cheerfully can say, let the unknown tomorrow bring with it what it may. It can bring with it nothing, but he will bring us through. He makes our feet like hinds feet. He'll bring us through. He gives the lilies clothing. He'll clothe his people too. Beneath the spreading heavens, no creature but is fed. And he who feeds the ravens will give his children bread. And then the last stanza. Though vine nor fig tree neither, their wanted, W-O-N-T-E-D, their usual fruit, their expected usual fruit should bear. Though all the fields should wither, nor flocks or herds be there, yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Father, we are blown away by your amazing kindness in giving us this precious book. Thank you for our nine weeks of being able to study Habakkuk together. And God, we come to the end saying, this is not what we expected. We did not expect to see someone suffering so badly being able to sing. That doesn't make sense to our human minds, our fleshly comprehension. And yet, you and your amazing grace have shown us a picture of Habakkuk who says, though I lose everything, if I have God, I have everything that I need. And we stand amazed because we know that that's not a work of Habakkuk. That is a work of you through him. He says it as much. You have made his feet strong. And so we ask for you to make our feet strong. That we would see that you are our steadfast joy in the midst of agonizing loss around us. You are our indestructible strength in the midst of suffocating weakness. And God, we want to declare that. We want to defiantly stand and sing and declare, you're better. You're better than everything. And we want lives that would prove that that's true. So God, tune our hearts now to sing your praise. May you and your kindness grow in us a love for Jesus and a focus on our salvation that would outshine and outlast any suffering we go through. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.